The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. Welcome uh, to the third Shape ID webinar. My name is Jane Olmeyer and I am the PI for Shape ID. I'm also Professor of Modern History in Trinity College Dublin and I chair the Irish Research Council. We're delighted to be doing uh, this in partnership with the Trinity Longroom Hub, which is um, the uh, research institute in the arts and humanities uh, at Trinity and it does many wonderful things including promoting uh, interdisciplinarity and transdisciplinarity and of course this is what Shape ID is all about it's a project funded by the European Commission under the Horizon 2020 framework program to address the challenge of integrating the arts humanities and social science is in interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary research. The project's led by the hub with partners from ETH at Zurich, Isanova in Rome, the University of Edinburgh, the Institute of Literary Research of the Polish Academy of Sciences, and Dr. Jack Spappen in the Netherlands. We're well into Shape ID at this point. We've completed a literature review, a survey. We've just finished the last of six learning case workshops. That was yesterday with researchers, uh, funders, policymakers, and other uh, stakeholders. Our first webinar was back in May uh, when we looked at interdisciplinarity in times of crisis and why perspectives from the arts, humanities and social sciences are so important. Um, our second webinar was back in June when we looked at bridging the gap between arts, humanities, social science research and policy. These are available on our website and the link to them is in our chat function. For this webinar today, uh, we look at the practice of interdisciplinary research um, and uh, uh, are selecting as a best practice example the neurohumanities. Um, and I'm hugely excited uh, about this conversation because we've been joined by three amazing uh, panelists. And I'd like to just take a moment to uh, welcome them all to. Uh, the Trinity Long Room Hub Online um, uh, and begin by uh, introducing the speakers in the order in which they'll speak. So we're going to be kicking off our conversation uh, 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 with Tom Carew, who's joining us uh, from the East Coast um, of America. Uh, he is got up very early this morning, but Tom is the Dean Emeritus and uh, Silver Professor in the Centre for Neuroscience at New York University, NYU. But we had the privilege of getting to know uh, Tom when he was a visiting fellow at the Trinity Long Room Hub. Sadly, uh, the outbreak of COVID-19 cut short his uh, fellowship. But even in the brief time he was with us, he did some absolutely fabulous work, particularly uh, with our own um, Centre Institute for Neuroscience, uh, led by uh, uh, the wonderful Manny Ramaswamy. And I believe uh, Manny and Tom are about to publish a special issue of The Neuron um, next month, uh, which includes uh, contributors and hopefully some of them are in the room with us uh, uh, today. So you're very welcome, uh, Tom. Welcome back to Trinity, Tom. 
Our second speaker today is Sonia Smets, who joins us uh, from Amsterdam. Uh, Sonia is a, a full professor in logic and epistemology, currently the scientific director of the Institute uh, for Logic, Language and Computation at the University of Amsterdam. Um, uh, Sonia, we're really delighted you could join us today. Our third panelist is Amelia McConville, and Amelia is an interdisciplinary early career researcher. Uh, she's doing her PhD on uh, the visual poetics, poetry and neurohumanities at Trinity College Dublin. And Amelia was an early career researcher based in the hub uh, uh, during uh, the last academic year and it was so lovely to learn about the amazing work she's doing uh, uh, obviously supervised uh, by colleagues in Trinity Philip Coleman in the School of English and Mani Ramaswamy um, uh, the head of our own neuroscience institute so Amelia you're very welcome as well I'd also like to welcome our audience I mean over a hundred people have registered today we're thrilled by the level of interest um, in terms of geography um, you come from every country um, uh, in Europe and and much wider um, and that's fantastic it's lovely especially those of you in the US you're getting up very early to join us uh, it's great to see so many people from all over the world um, along with some key organizations obviously colleagues from the European Commission it's great you're with us uh, from Science Gallery Ireland uh, from the Irish Higher Education Authority and from funding agencies across uh, uh, Europe um, just a quick word about the format and the engagement uh, today we're going to be live streaming the event on facebook we're also recording it so we can share it uh, with colleagues who weren't able uh, uh, to uh, make it the format is as in every other webinar each speaker will uh, speak for nine minutes and then we're going to be opening our conversation to the audience for Q&A and you can submit these Q&A. Um, uh, 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 there's a Q&A button at the bottom of your screen um, and uh, I'll ask the questions. Although I think now and again, uh, it would be uh, nice for me to call on colleagues who are in the audience to ask their own questions. But it would be also wonderful is as you ask your question, if you can indicate uh, where you're from and who you are, it's lovely to have that context. Um, we're using the chat function to share links and references um, and uh, but we're not going to be using it for questions um, but the references that are put in the chat function we will be sharing with everybody in the zoom room uh, uh, afterwards I also would encourage everybody to tweet those of you who are tweeters it's great to get the message out there about shape ID so please use uh, our hashtags and our handles and let's get that conversation uh, uh, going so without further ado I'd like to to turn to our first speaker today, uh, Tom, uh, uh, and invite you to, to kick off this uh, panel. So over to you, Tom. Well, Jane, thanks uh, so much for that lovely introduction. Um, and, and it's lovely, yeah, it is a bit early, truth be told, uh, <laughs> but it's just a delight to be uh, a part of this wonderful conference with some old friends and lots of new friends to discuss a very important thing. And Jane has been a leader of this enterprise for many years, and that is the importance of interdisciplinarity. <clears throat> what I'd like to talk about today is a project that my colleague and great friend Rami Ramaswamy and I have taken on. Jane alluded to the fact that we were going to do a three-month uh, three um, sabbatic together at Trinity, and my wife and I arrived in Dublin and did the most important thing first, find where Tohini and Nesbitt and Toners were, the two best pubs 
in the city, as Amelia will attest to later. <clears throat> but uh, then Manny and I were going to start working together, and of course, COVID got in the way. So we, my wife and I returned to the States, and Manny and I have been Zooming literally around the world for the last six months with colleagues. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about the goal of our project. Um, the, the background that inspires that is both Manny's and my background with a deep concern and love for not only science, but teaching and education and appreciating the importance of interdisciplinarity that intersects with both. <clears throat> Manny's been at Trinity for many years and a gifted teacher and scientist in, in, in his own right of the neuroscience world. I, as Jane alluded to, was I was at Yale, then at UC Irvine, but when I came to NYU, I, I was the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Science with a thousand faculty, but uh, so it's a big enterprise. But more importantly, my remit included the humanities and social sciences as well as sciences. And it was in that context over those eight years that I really came to appreciate the texture and the depth and the promise of partnerships between sciences writ large, but neuroscience to be sure, and the humanities. And that's kind of the germ that <clears throat> the seed that was planted that is now growing into this nascent plant uh, and budding that both uh, Manny and I have undertaken. So the project goal was to communicate to the neuroscience community. That's important. So there's lots of different folks you want to talk to in this enterprise. Our goal was to uh, bring the concept of the neurohumanities, the promises as well as the challenges, to the neuroscience community. And we considered lots of different models, but the one we settled on which was to invite a series of essays, uh, making contact with deep themes within the neural humanities, and I'll come back to that in a bit. In fact, some of the colleagues or architects of those pieces may be with us today, and I'd be delighted for them to hop in and, and contribute as well. <clears throat> but the idea was for to put together, ultimately it was five different essays, and in a journal, which is a premier journal in our field called Neuron. And Neuron um, uh, typically has hardcore science publications, as a neuroscience journal does, but it also has front-end, occasionally front-end uh, reviews and or essays called NeuroViews. And so the, the, the um, I'm timing myself. I realize I haven't started my timer, so I'll, if I, I'll try to be short rather than long. The, um, the, the five different NeuroViews that we're involved with are the one that Mandy and I discussed, and I'm gonna use that as a model for all, for all of them. But we also invited uh, four other uh, sets of colleagues to address issues in the neuroscience. <clears throat> so let, what Manny and I did was uh, put together an essay, a neuroview, and let me give you the title. It was called The Neurohumanities and Emerging Partnership for Exploring the Human Experience. <clears throat> and the goal was to bring to the neuroscience community the, both the promises and the challenges of this enterprise. Why is this a value? Well, we hope that for the humanities, it provides a, dipper, a chance for a richer and deeper insight into how our brains engage with the world in terms of uh, and respond to experiences in the world. And for the neurosciences, the equal, uh, I think, advantage would be to get us outside of the laboratory and control experiments and more in contact with the world writ large. Manny and I also tried to identify some of the barriers and some of the problems that one might encounter. Um, and one of the barriers on the neuroscience side of the equation would be the consideration that this whole enterprise was soft, that it wasn't rigorous, it wasn't scientific. We're talking about things like Michelangelo or <clears throat> something about uh, language on a page, as Amelia would talk about. Uh, and so it was not rigorous and, and therefore outside the remit of a real scientist. And for the humanities, uh, I think that if I was by anything my colleagues in the humanities was worried about, it was a hyphen. And that is a hyphen is not enough to take any of their disciplines and put a hyphen on the front end and put neuro in front of that did not create a discipline like neuroethics or neuroaesthetics 
Jane made this point in a beautiful talk she gave at uh, Trinity when, when I was there, where she mentioned that just swapping our vocabularies would not be enough to actually create the partnership that would drive the field forward, and, and I couldn't agree more. And Manny and I addressed that issue. <clears throat> so what we did in our own essay was to not only try to describe, and I'll get to our own leitmotif and the theme of our work, but to identify three parameters that would allow us to say, yeah, we're making progress. And another way to ask that question is, how do we know it's working? If we try to get a neuroscience community connected to uh, the folks in the humanities in a neuroscience uh, partnership, what are the ways we would tell it's working or it's not working? And so what Manny and I suggest are three concrete parameters, if you will, as bellwethers to, to assess progress. One has to do with enhanced communication in our field. The second with conceptual connectivity within our respective fields. And the third has to do with actionable outcomes. In fact, what is the point of all of this? Did something come out of the enterprise? And, and those three parameters, although by no means inclusive of all possible parameters, uh, allowed us then in our own essay and with our colleagues' uh, essays to ask what kinds of, of uh, structures or bellwethers we'd look to to see if progress was being made or in fact, what are the challenges to make progress. <clears throat> so before I talk about our essay, the other essays that we invited, the NeuroViews were on neuroesthetics. Uh, that was three colleagues, uh, Kayo Igaya, John O'Doherty, one of Trinity's own, and Gabby Starr. <clears throat> John and Kayo are at Caltech. Gabby is the president of Pomona College. So they're on the West Coast, and they wrote a lovely essay on neuroesthetics. Uh, the second was Language, Music, and Emotion by Kate Hartley and David Popple. Kate is a, a, a faculty member at NYU in psychology and neuroscience. David is both at NYU and it runs a Max Planck at uh, Frankfurt and is a, has a deep reputation and scholarly presence in the world of language. The third essay is by uh, uh, Beyond Ours, is a Cultural Memory by Yadin Dudai, who's I think with us today and I'm sure will uh, enhance the conversation a bit later. And Yadin has this wonderful uh, and, and, and far-reaching uh, new theory he's exploring about cultural memory. When we think of our memories, we think of a memory of when we were a kid and we had a bicycle or when we met our first date or when we had our first good meal or when we had our first tragedy or the like. Yadin thinks about not just storing our memories across a lifetime. He talks about storing it across not just even generations, but millennia, cultural memory, such that the cultural memory within his community, the Jewish community, goes back not years, goes back centuries. And he has this lovely idea of how this kind of cultural memory is transmitted. Uh, and he will, uh, I encourage you to read his essay. And then the last essay, the last neuroview, is on moral decision-making, again, by two of Trinity's own, uh, Claire Kelly and Redmond O'Connell. <clears throat> and I hope they're here and will embellish what I have to say, but they actually, in their essay, address the problem of not what should people do, but what do people do, and what kinds of events in the brains can tell us what they're doing and what they're not doing, what they should be doing, what they shouldn't be doing. And what are the kind of moral imperatives that we might derive from brain structure and neuroscience to inform the question of moral decision making? So those are the other four essays. Let me turn now to, to my essay with Manny's, <clears throat> where we talked about neural schemas. Both Manny and I study memory. And so we thought we would stay within the broad remit. We study mechanisms of memory on a molecular level. Uh, but we thought we would expand that into the notion of uh, neural schemas. So what's a schema? A schema is nothing more than a context. <clears throat> so if you're like Manny, a birder, you love birds, and you go outside and you see a bird outside, you'll say, oh, that's a, that kind of bird, and it migrates or it doesn't, and it eats this or it doesn't, or it's a prey or predator or this and that. 
So he will see a bird and, and, and put that new vision and that new memory into a, an existing context. A schema explains why a gifted musician can readily pick up a new instrument, whereas a novice would take longer because you're embedding this new experience in a network or in a, in a context for other memories as well. So it's very good. It allows you to generalize a schema. It allows you to learn things fast because you've got a, a, an association with other things already remembered. So the notion of schemas has real positive uh, evolutionary uh, effects. But it also can have negative effects. For example, you could have in, in our idea of, of, if you will, cultural identity in this essay, the idea of, are you one of us or not? What is your, my scheme is an in-group. Are you in that in-group or are you in an out-group? Who do you belong to? And how can I, if in, in, in the unperfect world, find ways to exclude you from my cultural schema and leave you in the out-group status? So the idea of schema writ large is not only a context, but also a challenge to understand how schema drive our behaviors, both for good and perhaps for less than good. <clears throat> so in our essay, we use those three parameters I mentioned, uh, enhanced communication, cultural, I'm sorry, conceptual connectivity, and uh, actionable outcomes within the framework of these neural schemas to see what kinds of connectivity there might be between the neurosciences and the humanities in that neighborhood. So then let me just conclude. Uh, and I'm going to read, I don't like to read what I'm chatting with folks, but I do want to get this right because we conclude with the following. We advance the argument that partnerships between neuroscience and the humanities, as reflected by these series of essays, will not only be mutually beneficial to each area, but will also create a new dimension of important and impactful scholarly activity, with the which is best guided by, guided by strong interdisciplinary scholarship, which is, of course, the deep theme of this lovely enterprise that Jane and her colleagues have created. <clears throat> so let me end as I began by acknowledging my wonderful friend and colleague, my brother, Manny Wamaswamy, for and thank him for his uh, his intellect for his wonderful critical nature, but also for his ready laugh. And also thank the other members of this whole team of colleagues who wrote these essays, some of whom are perhaps in this conference today, who collectively have put together, I think, something that could make an impact hopefully down the road. So with that, may I uh, then toss the, the baton over to Sonia. And thanks so much. Okay, um, so let me start. First, uh, thank you for inviting me here today. That's uh, very nice. I'm very glad that I can join. Um, so what I plan for now is that I tell you a little bit about the story of the Institute, the Institute for Logic, Language and Computation called the ILC at the University of Amsterdam, which exists now for 29 years in its current form. And I'm the director of that institute. And I want to tell you about what makes interdisciplinary research work at our institute, how we do it, why we do it. And let me zoom in at the end on a few examples. So I have two examples that I want to talk about. One is about the divide between logic and cognitive science currently. And the other one relates also to what we do within the Institute on music cognition. So these are two specific examples that I'll come back to later. But first, a little bit about the Institute. So it's a large institute. It's a community of about 150 people in total, includes staff, PhD students, and it operates in two faculties. So we operate in the Faculty of Science and we operate in the Faculty of Humanities. And it has a specific focus to bring all these people together. So the focus that we work on, so our research focus and our mission is that we are all concerned with 
the study of information, uh, information processing, information comprehension, and that goes from work in computer science all the way to music cognition. So it involves researchers coming from logic, mathematics, computer science, linguists, cognitive scientists, artificial intelligence, computer science, philosophy. So we cross uh, quite a large range of disciplines within the institutes. And what is required to make that work? Well, so I think the first instance, you need to create a context, a context of excellence. And then I mean, quite literally, you have to create a place where researchers can meet. So you have to really want to invest into doing that. And of course, having a place where people can work and meet is not enough. Researchers need to be open-minded. They need to trust each other and they need to be respected in their own disciplinary field. Because I don't have a view in the other fields. I don't know what the status and the expertise is. So I need to be able to trust my colleagues that they do have that expertise. So that also means that interdisciplinary work at our institute, it's not the only thing that our researchers do. They still operate and follow the developments in their own disciplines and they stay active in that area as well. So, um, and sometimes it's also not enough to create an environment like this just within one university. Uh, so just to give you an example, two years ago, University of Amsterdam and the University of Edinburgh they started a joint venture and we called it the new center for research in communication, cognition and computation. It brings together researchers working in these different areas and they use a variety of different methods. So you have formal methods on the one hand, but you have also experimental methods on the other hand. So methods coming from psychology, logic, mathematics, computer science, linguistics, cognitive modeling. So we bring them all together and the University of Edinburgh has certain strengths that the University of Amsterdam does not have and vice versa. So we even create now a, a much stronger community to really do that type of research that we are interested in. So last August, um, uh, yeah, well, August last year, I mean, not this year because we're due to this pandemic, we couldn't organize that much, but uh, we organized our first summer school and for this, we advertised explicitly within our institutions that we're looking to extract attendees who are not just interested in sharing their experience and looking in the other area, because that's actually not enough to get it to work. So we were looking for people who are actively interested in learning, in investing time, because interdisciplinary research takes time, to invest time in the other area and to work together on questions of mutual interest. And um, well, if you start on a new area or a new topic, it also may means that you have to be willing to ask these very basic questions that you know that the others in the area already understand. So how does interdisciplinary research then work? So the line of research within our institute that requires these researchers to establish a common ground. So you need to create a common language. Uh, between different approaches uh, coming from these different areas. And establishing that common ground is a big challenge, I think. There is no guarantee that this will work. There's no guarantee for success. But when it does succeed, it can unlock really truly innovative ideas. And then the question is, is this difficult? Of course it is. 
because even not all researchers welcome results from interdisciplinary work. A lot of universities and most funding agencies are still mainly organized according to disciplinary research lines. So you have to break through these lines to get this to work. So we know that it's difficult to do and there are lots of challenges. So now why do we do it? Okay, so now let me zoom in on a number of examples. And Jane, you have to give me a sign when I'm going to run out of time, right? Um, Okay, so a number of examples, logic, which is my own area of research, it's the area where I come from. Um, we know that the developments of logic from the 1930s onwards, together with the results in theoretical linguistics from the 1950s, had a direct and a gigantic impact on the development of programming languages in computer science. On the other hand, also uh, neural network models that were inspired by biological brains. They are nowadays central for the development of machine learning and artificial intelligence. Understanding language use and interaction via computational models contributes to the advancements of applications in artificial intelligence. And now let me come to the other examples that I mentioned in the beginning. The first one is um, the divide between two communities, logic on the one hand and cognitive science on the other hand. And when I talk now about cognitive science, I refer to the psychology of reasoning. So in that community, if we talk about reasoning, the art and science of reasoning, so logic and the psychology of reasoning, then there is a clear gap between in that community. And because many, many researchers, wrongly so, do think that logic only provides us with an instruction manual of how per perfect reasoners the godlike creatures ought to operate, how we ought to reason. And then when we want to explain how real human beings reason, a lot think that only cognitive science and neuroscience will hold the answer. But to talk about the science and art of reasoning, um, the two communities have to come together and they have drifted apart. So it really does require input from both sides to bring them together and to answer the real questions at stake, to get a full understanding of um, the study and art of reasoning. In the context of the ILC, early, even when we had an earlier collaboration with the University of Edinburgh, we brought together a cognitive scientist and a logician. So Keith Stanning on the one hand and Hill van Lambalke at the other hand. We brought them together and they wrote a book Human Reasoning and Cognitive Science. That's in 2008, the book was published. In that book, they argue for the indispensability of modern mathematical logic in the study of human reasoning. And now I quote from the book cover. Logic and cognition were once closely connected, they write, but they were divor divorced in the past century. The psychology of deduction went from being central to the cognitive revolution to being the subject of widespread skepticism about whether human reasoning really happens outside of academia. Standing and Van Lambalke argued that logic and reasoning have been separated because of a series of unwarranted assumptions about logic. And I actually fully agree with this. You really need to bring two areas together, but there might be uh, misconceptions about what the other area can contribute, and you have to break through those misconceptions. Indeed, we need to know what happens inside our brain when we solve a logical puzzle, and we 
proof theorem and mathematics. But that by itself may not be enough to explain everything that is going on there. Logic definitely also has a role to play. And of course, it also doesn't mean that neuroscience itself is going to tell us how we are going to solve the next open problem in mathematics. So the study of the cognitive basis of reasoning and problem solving is interesting, but it doesn't replace the disciplines, doesn't replace the work we're doing in logic, it also doesn't replace the work we're doing in mathematics. Vice versa, logic as the ultimate art of reasoning doesn't by itself have the full answer on the question on how humans actually reason. For many topics that come from the humanities and that deal with art and culture, we need both new theories and experimental findings to come together and they had together can take many more factors into account. Now, if we still have time, I will go over the other Okay, I'll go over uh, a little bit very quickly on the music cognition side, and then I'll end. So the music cognition side, we have a group within the ILC on music cognition um, that's headed by Henk-Jan Honing, Ashley Bourgogne, and Makiko Sadakata. And in a recent blog of our institute, um, we did an interview, we do interviews with a number of people. There is one recent one on diversity, which is very nice. There is another one that, uh, in which we interviewed Henk-Jan Honing, who, who works on music cognition. There's one question which I think is very relevant for our discussion today, which I'll ask you. So, so he was asked in our blog, so suppose you find out everything about music in the brain, then do you think you will be able to predict everything about musicality? That was the question we asked him. And his answer, let me quote what he said. Only talking about brains is obviously a simplification. Of course, the body as a whole plays an important role as well. And how someone listens to music crucially depends on our culture he or she comes from. Moreover, understanding something doesn't mean that you can reproduce it. I don't think I will be able to make a very popular song on the basis of science. And this is not even my aim. My aim is understanding. And it's the same story that I gave for in the case of uh, the divide between logic and the cognitive sciences, because there the aim is, we aim for understanding. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think there is much more that I can say, but let me uh, finish here and we can come back to that later on if there are questions. So I'll hand over to Amelia. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Sonia and Tom, for two brilliant uh, presentations. It's, it's lovely to be on this panel. Thank you so much for inviting me to Shape ID and the Hub uh, for hosting me. Um, so I suppose, uh, yeah, it's up to me now as, as a third speaker to, I suppose, share a few reflections on um, my own research and how, I suppose, a few notes that I have on um, best practice that I've encountered over my last two years of doctoral research. Um, a little bit on my background, um, I'm actually not uh, a science researcher myself, so my background is in um, English literature and philosophy. Um, and around about the time I was thinking about uh, starting a PhD, I was, I was very fortunate to be in both the right place um, at the right time um, in my conversations with my now supervisor, uh, Philip Coleman, in the School of English. Uh, who put me in touch with um, Manny Ramaswamy, who I know is in the audience. Um, and the three of us sort of came up with this idea of combining poetry and neuroscience um, under the kind of moniker, I guess, of, of neurohumanities um, and trying to come up with a collaborative uh, project. So this is sort of where I found myself. Um, and it's been a very interesting journey so far and one that I felt um, extremely 
supported uh, in Trinity um, in order to proceed properly. Um, so yeah, I suppose my my um, my notes on on best practice are are quite are quite broad, but uh, I I've put them together with with the idea of, of sharing a little bit of information about my own research and my own trajectory as well. Um, so I suppose over the first year of my um, my doctor doctoral studies, I started reading about a lot of empirical studies that tackle poetry. Um, so while it's not the most popular area of study or research, there's not a huge amount of stuff on poetry, um, like neuropsychological studies of poetry. There's lots of cases of um, neuroscientists and researchers doing very experimental psychology and putting people in fMRI machines and doing EEG readings um, and like reading poetry to them, measuring their brain, wave, brain waves. Um, this is all fascinating stuff, but I found I, through my own research and, and um, sort of reflection on the subject, I found more and more that this kind of research is often characterized by a very unidirectional approach. Um, and it often, sometimes unintentionally, positions the science as illuminating the art or conclusively proving things that, from a humanities point of view, seem very obvious. Um, so often in research articles, the results of experimentations are, are conclusions that you are allowed to assume to be true within the humanities. Um, but for science, it was required that a certain amount of, of proving or concluding um, was required before you could actually establish these things. Um, and I think from a philosophical point of view, uh, this starts to get really, really interesting because you enter into the discussion about the abilities of uh, their respective fields to make truth claims. Um, and you get into all sorts of interesting ontological quandaries about um, who owns knowledge, who can be said to say that a certain thing is true. Um, but maybe that's a discussion for, for another time. Um, I suppose so during my first year of research as well is where I started to get um, really interested in then the different types of discourses and methodologies that characterize inter in the interdisciplinary endeavor in general. Um, there's a lot of talk about the asymmetrical support relations, um, which is a great kind of way of phrasing it, I suppose, between humanities and sciences. And negotiating this dynamic between disciplines, I think, requires far more nuance and humility and care that's often demonstrated um, in existing practice. Um, so that brings me to my first note on best practice, uh, which is to watch out for certain red flags that I started to notice um, in my reading of cognitive humanities research thus far. Um, a common feature of this, and you, you often see it as well in um, a lot of different um, uh, popular neuroscience articles, um, and it's this idea that uh, that the brain, you know, certain stimuli, be they poetry or otherwise, within my own field, um, can cause certain parts of the brain to light up. And I always think that this is this is um, an immediate red flag, um, because as our as our as our established neuroscientists in the audience will know, that the brain is in a constant state of lighting up altogether, and measuring brain activity in response to um, as such a specific stimuli, such as poetry or something like that, is, is really kind of a bit of a tricky game um, if you're going to try and draw grand sweeping conclusions from this. Um, so yeah, so, so I suppose um, another problem then in neuropsychological research, um, whereby the conclusions drawn from experiments that deal with or seek to quantify subjects' reaction to poetry, um, they can hardly be classed as revelatory from a literary studies point of view. Um, so again, it's this problem to the, it's this return to the old problem of what counts as, what actually counts as knowledge when considering different discourses. Um, similarly, in, in, in it goes both ways because in pre predominantly humanities-based discourses, there's sometimes these grand sweeping statements. Another red flag is, is that there's these huge appeals to left brain, right brain theories to conclusively explain subjective responses to art or literature. Um, and I think this is just as bad, if not um, a more damaging form of reductionism that's very much um, perpetrated on the more literary side uh, or the more humanities side of cognitive humanities or neurohumanities research. Um, so yeah, I suppose so being, being aware of these reductionist and red flag indicators on both sides would certainly be my first note on, um, on best practice. 
Um, regarding my own research um, on the more literary side of things, so um, as has been mentioned already, I concern myself with the subgenre of visual poetry, um, which is often critically underexplored within poetry studies. Um, visual poetry and visual poetics, which is kind of the study of how visual poetry might be configured, um, is very hard to define. But its chief characteristic, um, as Tom has briefly mentioned before, is, is that uh, how it looks on the page, um, how the language is actually configured, is just as important to how it so sounds when it, when it is read aloud. Um, there's a really interesting tradition of shaped and patterned poetry dating back to antiquity and a fascinating path to trace all the way up to the present day in terms of how visual poetics are conceived of um, and explored today. Um, if we think of poetry as a literary art form which was originally written to be heard aloud, um, this is often still a dominant feature of how it's composed or written or performed, um, but its visual impact and effect is still ignored or critically underexplored. Um, now for some poets this is fine, but for others when the visual and the verbal modes are blended, um, whereby the distribution of words on a page can be intentionally positioned to visually mimic or expand the scope of the poem's meaning, things start to get quite complicated for literary criticism and particularly um, literary criticism and analysis really actually struggles to generate meaning and readings from these intermedial kinds of poetry. Um, and for me, um, in my sort of, um, in my own research, this is where neurohumanities come in, comes in. Um, and I, I've kind of identified this really interesting opportunity uh, for neurohumanities to complement a reading of visual poetry um, and visual poetics. And I position it not as an alternative to literary criticism, but as a way to open a new perspective um, and to expand our way of thinking about this kind of uh, challenging work. Um, and I know time is a constraint um, as it has been for everyone so I won't go into a huge amount of detail on this but where I'm at at the moment in terms of the neurohumanities component of my research is the cognitive model of working memory so the, the component of short-term memory um, and there's some really interesting research that's out there already that um, combines an understanding of the cognitive model of working memory with a definition of poetry in the poetic line so I'm interested in um, I'm very interested in uh, how we might uh, expand uh, an understanding of both uh, both visual poetry itself and visual poetics, but also our, uh, our whether we can understand the cognitive model of working memory itself through studying this kind of uh, visual poetry as a stimulus. Um, so it's still very much in the uh, the theoretical and kind of conceptual stages of this, but um, I think the two fields can meet at a very interesting touch point um, in relation to this specific aspect um, of poetry's visual configuration. Um, so I think I suppose that another note of um, best practice that um, I think distinguishes really crucial and that distinguishes my approach um, uh, is reciprocity. So this is this is this idea that the two disciplines can have conversations together, that they need to be conversant with, with one another um, and be very humble in how they meet um, and how we think about combining them. Um, so I'm very fortunate that my my research and my research space, I have the, the I do have the space to consider these questions of reciprocity. Um, and in this sense, I do consider my PhD a stepping stone along this path of interdisciplinary uh, interdisciplinarity, and um, maybe a step towards uh, what Tom and Manny reference in their forthcoming article as the actionable outcome. Um, of neurohumanities uh, research. Um, and I think there is a kind of humility required in the pursuit of true reciprocity. Um, and this again is again a luxury that I'm afforded uh, by my position within Trinity. Um, and I think as well as a humanities scholar dipping my toe into um, experimental psychology and neuroscience, I think humility has to be a default setting. So that would again also be a definitely um, a feature of, of a best practice, I think. Um, it would also, I think my a final point that I would make about a best practice would be, um, and Tom has touched on this already in, in his presentation, is 
to either let go of, if, if it's not possible to let go of completely, at the very least to pay less heed to concepts such as hard and soft sciences. Now this might be a bit controversial um, because it's not that these categories don't have uh, value because, but the, the problem for me, and I think the problem in general, is that there's an implied hierarchy within them that proves very difficult. And um, when you're trying to achieve this sense of um, humility and reciprocity, to have a conversation across disciplines. Um, and it's already an issue within scientific discourse, let alone when you move outside it into humanities um, and cognitive humanities and neurohumanities um, discourses. Um, so yeah, I suppose that the amount of theoretical and methodological considerations that I've had to pay heed to, um, the space of interdisciplinarity really affords this luxury to me um, to be able to move past these categories of hard and soft and into a more fluid and equitable discursive space. Um, for my own research. Um, and I suppose an, a note that I'd like to end on comes from um, experimental visual poet and critic Charles Bernstein. Um, and he emphasizes the, the importance of the role of the university as a place for open-ended research uh, that can just as well lead nowhere as somewhere. And he says that it's most effective, the university is not oriented towards marketplace discipline and employment training, but rather towards maximizing the capacity for reflection and creativity. Um, so yeah, as, as an interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary neurohumanities researcher, I'd really advocate um, this and, and, and everything else um, when you're moving towards uh, the best policy for best practice. So yeah, thank you very much. Amelia, thank you. That was fantastic. Sonia, thank you. Uh, again, just Tom, three amazing, so stimulating, inspiring uh, 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 talks. So thank you. So I'm encouraging everybody to put Q&A, uh, your questions in the Q&A function. It's lovely to see the audience introducing themselves, sharing uh, uh, some wonderful material in the chat function, but we, we'd love your questions. Um, I have had the privilege of being very involved in the neurohumanities uh, 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 project in Trinity uh, and Manny was the one with the vision who went to welcome to get the money which is so important that then helped trigger all of these amazing conversations and a number of things that you guys have said really resonate uh, with me the humility the time Sonia it just tells not being frightened to be pushed out of your comfort zone you know really important um, the respect the reciprocity you know all of these things I think are what makes for good interdisciplinarity but it's not for the faint-hearted either uh, and, and we haven't really talked about obstacles and we're going to have a very positive conversation today but people shouldn't be nervous about talking about the issues, especially the institutional barriers. I chair a research council. I know just that the barriers are there at many, many different levels. So it's a great opportunity for sort of a, a, an open conversation. I'm conscious, Tom, that a couple of your collaborators are in, in the Zoom room. And as the questions start to come in, I just wonder if Yadine Doody, whose name has come up a couple of times and who introduced himself uh, uh, in the chat function, and Manny, uh, who we keep on coming back to, would like to maybe just to respond to what they've heard as people start to get uh, questions going. Yadine, without wishing to put you on the spot, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Um, uh, I don't know if you'd like to respond to anything that you've heard, uh, and, 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 and Manny as well. I don't know if we can turn to Yadine first, if, if you don't mind. Um, uh, if you're, I hope you're still with us, Yadine. Are you yes, in the room? Yeah, would you mind you. responding to what you've heard? And very nice to meet you virtually. I feel I know you because I've heard so much about you from Manny and from Tom, but welcome today. Would you like to respond to some of the things you've just heard? 
Yeah, first of all, thank you so much. And uh, if you heard things about me from uh, Tom and Manny, then I should correct the impression when we have a chance. Uh, <laughs> I hope we do after the COVID-19 disappears. I, I was in the middle of writing a, a, a question, which was a comment, uh, which was also probably the answer. I uh, suggested to drop the term interdisciplinarity, uh, which I personally don't like. Because I think that if we approach a problem from two or more disciplines, we should be well versed into at least one of them. While interdisciplinarity means that you have to sort of stay in between and multidisciplinarity means that you contribute from more than one discipline. So this is a term I use in my teaching and in my conversation, uh, conversations on that. So this was just a suggestion, which you obviously can immediately reject and uh, then we start discussing why. Um, so this is just a term, but terms uh, do matter. Uh, second, uh, Tom uh, represented beautifully the collection of uh, items that is uh, planned to appear in Neuron, I think at the end of November, Tom, that's correct? And I would uh, encourage people to read it. Uh, because of two reasons. Uh, one, uh, because it's interesting, and uh, B, because one of mine is there. So I think it's, uh, both reasons are nice. Uh, I, I think I, I would like just to add one comment, which from my point of view is rather critical. Uh, there are two levels, and I think uh, Tom alluded to that, but I just want to put it in a sort of a different wording. From my point of view, it's extremely important to an interesting and enchanting and enticing to um, uh, try to uh, borrow or uh, uh, study a topic from multiple, uh, uh, from the point of view of multiple disciplines. In my uh, on uh, training, I, uh, in, 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 in the, my BSc, I also complemented my studies with modern history. So I, I sort of felt it's, it's, it's very important. However, there is a different level, which I think that Tom alluded to, uh, which is how do you know that it's more than just enjoyment? How do you know that it's more than just trying to have a common vocabulary with Amelia, with uh, Sonia, uh, with Jane, with uh, uh, Tom is in my field, so I have common uh, languages in anyway. So one thing is to try to create a sort of a dictionary. Uh, try to understand whether the term that, for example, Amelia is using mean the same in my discipline. And in my own discipline, in my own discipline, neuroscience, if you talk to people from various sub-disciplines, you find out that sometimes the same terminology uh, means very different things to them. So this is a simple uh, question, and I think the solution is rather simple. The solution is listen. Uh, listen uh, to the other uh, discipline and try to find out whether they really comprehend the term in the way you do, and if we are good enough, we can explain to each other and, and reach a disagreement or an agreement, but this is rare. But the second point is, from my point of view, the value is, if I can, on the basis of collaboration with another, or, or on the basis of studying another discipline or borrowing from another discipline, if I can advance my own understanding and propose a new a model or a new experiment, which is based on the information uh, received from the other discipline. So without that, 
it's enjoyable, but I'm not sure it's it, it is advancing the field. And that's the very difficult step. It's very difficult. Uh, in, 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 I'll, I'll conclude by saying that one of the things I'm trying to do is to try to understand whether I can understand better some issues in memory research from studying history and cultural studies. Just an example. Without that, it's just a very interesting and sort of it's, it's an enjoyment, but I wish to advance the field. And I think it's reciprocal. It, it should come from both sides. So if my uh, colleague at archaeology, archaeology is easy in, in that case, but if my, my colleague in history can somehow push a model farther by understanding what I mean by consolidation of memory over time or by retroactive interference, terms to sort of make you understand that I try to pretend myself, that, to pretend that I understand my own field. Uh, this is something which is very important. So I will conclude here. I rest my case. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Yadina. As a historian, I, I would love to have a longer conversation with you because this is, but, but it's, well, I, thank you for that. I'm going to actually turn to Manny briefly, and then there's a lot of questions. So maybe Manny, and then we'll come back to the panel, and then we'll engage with some of these questions. But the one from John Hegarty sort of uh, underscores what you just said there, Yadine, in terms of, well, you know, how is it actually advancing the field? His is, is, is strong management necessary for sustainability? And does this um, uh, 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 rest easy? with academic culture, um, neurohumanities is it's largely said uh, any significant and unexpected breakthroughs. I think, again, that complements that very nicely. Mani, do you want to say a word before we go to the questions and back to the panel? Well, I can say, I can say a couple of things. Um, please, one, please. I mean, one is uh, just building on what John was, on, on what John Hegarty was saying as well. I mean, I feel that uh, there has to be a general acceptance without any question that interdisciplinarity, which is or even if, for want of a better word for right now, which is uh, discussing problems which uh, one, which one which perspective, neuroscience for instance, we don't yet have answers to, which are challenging to us, which are mysterious to us, and forcing us to actually go out to address mystery, these mysteries in collaboration with others, could be in engineering, could be in physics, could be with humanities. I mean, these endeavors are absolutely essential for an academic institution. So I'm just teaching, a, I'm just teaching, um, giving a lecture on the structure of DNA. And I find that it, the key people were John Randall, who discovered key component of the radar technology. Uh, there was uh, Francis Crick, who worked uh, on, uh, he, he worked on underwater bombs during the war. And then there was uh, Watson who worked on birds. So these were all people who came from, and of course, uh, Rosalind Franklin who worked on the structure of coal. So these were all people who worked on completely different things who suddenly embraced a new problem and contributed to it. So before we ask, I mean, what is the outcome? What is the value of every single thing we are doing in the short term? There has to be an embrace of the fact that this is not a short term issue. This is a cultural issue. We should be asking in terms of how the academic um, environment supports it. I think every school, every department should be asked, how are you challenging yourself to address questions that you, know, you don't understand? And how are you partnering with other colleagues and other departments and other schools to do so? And this should be part of the fundamental aspect of how we work as institutions, because only by addressing mysteries 
and addressing things we cannot, trying to do things we cannot do, will we ever really uh, achieve you know, our potential? I fully agree with that one, Manny. I mean, just inspiring. Can we go back to the panel now? There's some really interesting uh, points there. Tom, you kick it off, but then please, Sonia and Amelia, join in. I'll just briefly respond <clears throat> and welcome you, Dean, across the world. Good to see you, my brother. Um, I think that one of the leitmotifs across both Sonia and Amelia's uh, lovely talks, and hopefully mine as well, has been already captured by the discussion. <clears throat> it has to do with language and terminology. Uh, back in the day, Bernard Katz, a very famous scientist in our field, once said, and he, this is attributed to others, that about terminology, that a scientist would rather use another scientist's toothbrush than his terminology. The point being that there is something sacred about the way we capture our world. And a, a really fun thing to do, and Amelia and my wife and I and, and Autumn over a pint got you know, an inch towards that journey a, a while back, is to say, how do you think about this? What words do you use? And it's not just how you render it into language, it's how does the concept translate? For me, thinking about memory from DNA and RNA and the like, uh, to watching your first child yawn, and you don't worry about what your cortex is responding, it melts your heart. How do we get from one to the other? And I think part of it is, it, humility is wonderful, the way Amelia captured, I think it is acknowledging that we all use language as shorthands for thought, but none of us have special purchase on that moral high ground. Rather, each of us, when you learn a new language, if I'm learning to speak Spanish as I did as a kid, I had to learn how you said, say, refrigerator, and it's not easy. It isn't that I had some special purchase by being an English speaker, it's that if I wanted to join another language, I had to then appreciate that there's different ways to think as well as to speak. So long story short, I think that, that terminology is not just signpost towards meaning, it is a deeper, uh, it has a deeper purchase on the actual texture of how we think. And so the openness that Sonia encouraged and Amelia encouraged, I think is almost a, a river that will carry this entire uh, enterprise forward. Let me stop there. Thank you. Sonia, please. Yeah, I agree. I fully agree with that indeed. So I stressed also the necessity to create this common ground. And then I refer even to the linguistic meaning. You have to really create that common language, common ground. You have to understand each other. And that takes a lot of effort. It means that you will have to talk, give presentations for communities of researchers that you don't even know if your terminology is going to be the best one. So if you move as a fully established researcher in an entirely new community, you better do your homework very well because make sure that your terminology is right and that you, you talk to different communities that they will understand you. And you will feel just the same way as when you were a PhD student and gave your first talk ever. So <laughs> you have to really go back to the drawing board and make sure that, that you can establish a common ground and that people will understand you. And yeah, that's not so easy. I experienced that myself. That's definitely not an easy thing to do. Yeah. But when you do, it will work. So yeah. that, that's also the thing. You will open up new boundaries and, and it will work. And I think trust is so important there as well. I trust Tom, I trust Manny. So if they ask me to do it, then I know, you know, anyway, I, I, I think that that's a very important point. Amelia, do you want to get in here before we go to some of the questions? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think just both Tom and Sonia have said it really, really beautifully. Um, but I suppose, yeah, I, I on the point about translatability and translating languages um, and sort of terminology across disciplines, I definitely agree. I mean, I mean, neurohumanities, cognitive humanities, all these, there isn't really yet a kind of compendium of phrases that we can all use and um, sort of be on the same page about this kind of thing. So it tends to be sort of up to the individual researcher or the research group or the lab to sort of define their own terms at the start of um, each uh, sort of methodological I don't know, foray into interdisciplinarity. So it's, I don't know, I suppose on that, I, I would say that maybe that's something that is coming down the line, but to agree on a common term, a common terminology that we can all access and use and agree upon. Um, and I wonder, sort of abstracting myself, whether maybe philosophy might uh, have the sort of tools to, to bring that about. If, if I always kind of think of philosophy in general as, as a, something that an, under, an undercurrent under all subjects that kind of influences them in their own way. So perhaps maybe that might be one area we could go to. Um, but also, yeah, I would just say that, that um, something Sonia said about the idea of having um, a space for researchers to meet and to practice that art of conversation and, and to practice that humility together is so essential. I know a lot of um, my biggest breakthroughs and revelations have often come because I've been having an informal conversation with somebody who's not in my discipline. Um, so having in, within the university, within the research center, having that sort of space is absolutely essential, I think. And, and I think the Long Room Hub really, really ser has served as that for me over the last year and so, but just, yeah, proper investment in those kind of spaces for conversation is essential. Yeah, and hopefully we'll continue. Just because you're not in the building doesn't mean you're not part of the community, Amelia, you know that. Uh, I would like to take a question from Miranda Anderson, who's joining us from Edinburgh. I don't know, maybe Sonia, one of your collaborators. Um, and our question is, cognitive scientific approaches have shown the role not only of the brain, but also the body and world in the mind, as suggesting a scientific basis for understanding culture, a middle path between universalism and relativism, and bringing into focus, into more focus, qualitative experience, which suggests a rich and fertile dialogue is possible with the arts and humanities. Do you uh, have a view on expanding the scope of interdisciplinary engagement by considering not just neuroscientific, but cognitive scientific approaches to the mind? I don't know, Sonia, do you want to um, respond to that? But then Tom and Amelia can also uh, yeah, give their views. Well, I think that, um so the broad view and the fact that uh, uh, not only input from neuroscience is necessary but, but that you also from that you broaden up the cognitive science view on what the mind is and how it operates uh, brings in together so many different aspects and now i only look at the philosophy of mind and, and cognitive philosophy everything that goes on there but you need as well input from that comes from the social sciences that comes from history that comes from linguistics i mean people live in a world and they need to find information all around and they're being influenced by others i mean so the whole picture is gigantic so i think there are so many questions that we still need to answer and what we do now what we currently have done and what neuroscience can contribute is just a little answer to some of the things but the the quest the the type of questions are, are gigantic so i only hope that more universities will invest actually in that line of research so that's also what this collaboration between ILC and um, the University of Edinburgh, the University of Amsterdam, what we're trying to do with that new center is that we look at cognition, but we also look at communication. We have cognitive scientists, psychologists, but we need the linguists as well, else we can't answer these questions that we are aiming for. So um, I don't know if this answers the question or 
kids to something that I can pass on to. Uh, well, I don't know if Tom or Amelia want to get in here or we can take a, another question. I'm not saying, Amelia, go ahead and then maybe we'll take another question. Please yeah, go ahead. Just really briefly that, that absolutely. I mean, like, like I, I have the luxury of using kind of cognitive humanities and neurohumanities using those terms interchangeably, but I'm aware that for somebody who's working in hard neuroscience, as it were, they're quite different. Um, they're quite different, uh, I suppose, methodologies that you would draw from. But in terms of cognitive humanities and uh, cognitive science, there's fascinating, I won't go into it now because we're, we're tight for time, but there's fascinating um, fields, there's embodied cognition, inactive cognition, extended cognition, and these all relate to really fascinating um, ways of thinking about how we think and how our body and mind both kind of correspond with each other in relation to meaning and arts and humanities and existence. But yeah, a conversation for another time, maybe. <laughs> or actually, maybe one more, there's a lovely question here from Jessica Brown. Uh, she says, hello, and thank you for the inspiring panel. Uh, thank you for being with us, Jessica. Uh, I'm a creative writing PhD candidate at UL. So I'm, 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 I think that's University of Limerick rather than University of London, but I think Limerick. I'm carrying out research in affect theory, how we uh, affect and are affected, AFF, uh, and narrative studies. Many times the affect is, is explored in scholarship through cognitive neuroscience lenses, but other branches of affect theory push against this to register a more bodily collective lens. This is usually an either or positioning instead of additive alongside dialogue. What do you think? Do we advance our understanding of affect in this divided way or is there a space for these branches to be more intertwined and informing each other? That's probably one for you to kick off with Amelia just because that's coming from the same sort of background. But again, I'd love uh, 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 Sonia and, and Tom to kick in. Please go ahead. Yeah, I mean, just briefly, that, that's fascinating. Yeah, affect theory is, is very interesting. Um, indeed, a really interesting, I suppose, um, connection between, yeah, as you say, the more sort of neuro cognitive and neuroscience lens versus very subjective experience. In terms of, I'm, I'm no expert on it, so I, I couldn't really advise you one way, maybe our, the other panelists could, but I do think it's a fascinating, it brings up exactly what we've been talking about, which is the this, the kind of clash of subjectivity and objectivity that's kind of this age-old clash between um, humanities and sciences that when you you're studying something like affect theory which deals exclusively with subject subjective response to narrative or subjective response to art it's fascinating to think about how you can resolve the sort of scientific paradigm within that um, so yeah my short answer would be I don't know but maybe the panel could, could weigh in. <laughs> I don't know if Tom or, or, or Sonia want to go in there or we can move to the next question. No, I'm not seeing any hands. So, so maybe we'll move on. Um, and I, I want to pick up, uh, it's, well, I'm not, it's uh, uh, Isabel Kalane, Kalan. Uh, it's a question, sorry, Sonia mentioned that breaking the lines between funding bodies is important in interdisciplinary research. Could the panel comment on how they did this to gain funding for their research and how they develop this network. Now, obviously, this is a, such an important area. Uh, and as a, a, an agent, I, I chair an agency that funds Blue Skies Research uh, that is, is, is really all a PI-driven, bottom-up, excellent idea. And we've tried very hard to encourage interdisciplinarity, but again, very conscious that there just simply isn't enough money around for this sort of blue skies research. But Tom, you've been in the game a long, long time. Obviously your context is different in terms of uh, uh, you're looking for funding on the other side of the pond, but maybe you and Sonia can talk a little bit about how you funded your research, but kick off with Tom. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to respond to it, but it's not gonna be an upbeat response because I think that I forgot, I apologize the, the name of the questioner, but she's spot on. Um, it's Isabella. 
Isabella, thanks so much. Well, Isabella, uh, you've, you've touched sort of one of the real nerves of the enterprise, and that is that all, in the neurosciences, I can only talk about my own world, we have to bootleg all of these kinds of endeavors. If I wrote right now a grant to any of the NIH, NSF agencies that have funded my work since I was a young scientist, uh, they, they might appreciate the, the try, but it wouldn't even make the first round. Because uh, if anything, we, I guess part of the, my answer would be that neuroscience is science in general, but neuroscience is my own neighborhood, uh, is reductionist. It wants to understand the mechanism of X, and X that you'll take as memory, or X you'll take as poetry, but you want to go down to the mechanism of X. And Manny and I, and I invite Manny to weigh in as well, um, have talked about this quite a bit. In order to make, break the barriers we've just talked about, it takes someone like Jane. It takes someone that, that understands that blue sky. If, you, if I even said that to the, to the NIH, they would think I'm talking about the weather. They would have no idea what I'm talking about in terms of ideas. So I think that the, it has to be local and small. Start, I would have a collaboration with David Popple or Kate Hartley in my home institution to have a small project that then might grow into something that cross the boundary into what I'll call the funding arena. But I think of all the barriers, I'm not gonna get histrionic here, but of all the barriers to interdisciplinarity, it's the fact that since we have models already established for different neighborhoods, if you wanna get out of any of those neighborhoods and get into one that is outside the entire enterprise and might be a brand new neighborhood you're creating, it's gonna be very difficult to get actual funding for that enterprise. Now, the good news is a lot of the kinds of things we're talking about don't require deep funding for empirical research as much as intellectual partnerships that might be funded by Commonwealth or the things that Jane does at the Hub and the like. But I, I, I will stop chatting now but invite Manny because he's certainly talked about this with me a lot. I think that's a genuine barrier that will be uh, non-trivial to overcome. Because once you cross over into a limited pie, as we have in the States and you have in the UK, as you have in, in, in Edinburgh and Scotland, I think that the, the number of folks wanting to do interesting work is much greater than is the, the uh, ability to support all those folks. And so the triage is done every day on interesting work within a discipline, let alone across disciplines. Long story short, uh, it's not going to be easy. Thank you, Tom. Manny, do you want to chime in there before we yeah. turn to Sonia? Please do. Yeah, I can just, yeah, so I mean, a couple of things. One is, um, I think I mean, Sonia made the point that these things, that these, that developing, uh, developing a connection takes a certain amount of time. So I think that you can't really have a very quick transactional relationship to strike a grant on, in, on, in, in three months and say otherwise it's a waste of time. But that said, I, I think that, um, the, the European Research Council in particular has a social and humanities program and they have a cognitive neuroscience uh, related sections as well. And they actually do like these blue sky type questions, especially ones that are, um, that, you know, that, that, that look like they're going to be extraordinarily difficult to answer. So I think that we in Trinity, especially because of our interactions and are in a reasonably good position to develop it if people, you know, can have the time to have a few more conversations. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Manny. Uh, Sonia, please. Yeah, no, that uh, the question about the funding and how do we get it all organized, that, that's very, very important because um, I am actually in a way very lucky that I ended up at the center in Amsterdam where our colleagues uh, already a long time ago, but in 91, started this institute. 
So we have a tradition and the board of the university agreed to support it, but that's not a given, right? So that means that every time we have to argue again and again, why this is really crucial and why this type of research is important and why this center that fits somewhere not within any specific faculty, it's kind of floating in between the two, why we need it. And so, and that is hard because it means all the other disciplines, the, the, the other departments, they have to write a report every now and then, and then they use as a benchmark the other departments in the country or somewhere else. But what is going to be our benchmark for this new interdisciplinary institute? So, so then we really have to pick together a puzzle and build up the story. And then of course, there are more initiatives also in the States. There's CIS Alliance, Stanford University, which we can use. There are centers in Edinburgh. So there are Munich. I mean, so there, there are many places in Europe, but we have to really look for them. So it's not that every university has them for grabbing. We can say, oh, look, our benchmark is we compare with how well the others are doing. Mm -hmm. And for research funding, um, I'm, we're still not there. So indeed there is uh, the the european research council is doing an excellent job so i'm very happy that that is there and it supports this type of work so it supports interdisciplinary research interdisciplinarity is really a question that you you have to point out and it's an added value when you write a proposal so that that is really really important but it's less so at the national science foundation and the national science foundation they do like interdisciplinary research as well, but within the humanities or interdisciplinary research within the sciences. So mathematics and physicists can collaborate, but somebody from humanities with physics, for instance, that's weird. That goes way beyond what they can handle. And that means that there are still divides between these areas that we have to cross. We have to yeah, whenever we can, we, we raise the issue, we have to go and sit at the board of, of the tables and talk to the, the funding agencies and, and show them what the added value is of the research that we do. That's the only way in, in which way that we can get the university boards and the funding agencies uh, aligned with our initiative and to really see why it is so important that they reserve some of their budget at least for this. Yeah. But it, it's very difficult. It doesn't come from its own. And what you can do then is what Tom said, right? You start small. You talk with your colleagues and you start a small reading group or you supervise a student from different directions. And so that's, uh, so you, you start these small initiatives and then hopefully they can grow. And then uh, people will notice that when you do it, they, they definitely, they become noticeable. Well, do you know, that's exactly, of course, what we've been trying to do here in Trinity, uh, uh, Sonia, and that's where the investment from the Wellcome Trust was so important because that really pump primed it. Um, and, and the very fact that Amelia is here, uh, actually, it, it, you know, it, this is where it becomes real when you have that pipeline of uh, amazing uh, early career researchers who bring life then to the whole in this case, uh, uh, neurohumanities. Amelia, this funding conversation, I hope it's not depressing you. you you're still inspired to, to, to keep going and, and know that the ambition is so important here. Um, yeah, you're, you don't add anything in, in terms of funding, apart from you need plenty of it. Yeah, no, just that I'm very fortunate in that um, I was funded by, again, a student stipend for Trinity and was very fortunate to get a, an Irish Research Council um, postgrad scholarship for my final two years of research. But I do think, though, that the fact that I 
got, was, was lucky to get both of those funding does reflect that things are changing a little bit and that uh, interdisciplinary scholars are being taken a little bit more seriously, I think, at least on a, on a PhD level. Well, do you know, obviously we're going to be talking about funding and I'm going to talk about that in a moment. We're coming to the end of our time and I, I just want to wrap it up. Um, but I also want to uh, draw attention uh, uh, maybe just to, to Kay McLean, uh, uh, who is uh, a STEM graduate from Trinity Microbiology, um, who's a lab scientist and who uh, writes, uh, she manages EU funded STEM projects. And um, I, I love the fact, Kay, that you're saying you'd like to incorporate humanities expertise into your projects um, and uh, you're asked by funders, you know, to do so. Well, that's part of the purpose of Shape ID is actually to broker these conversations. And what we've seen here with neurohumanities is simply a case study of how that brokerage is extremely important. So all I would say to you, Kay, is reach out to us. Um, uh, I should have introduced at the outset, um, Darren Wallace, who is the amazing program manager uh, for Shape ID, and Darren can connect you in. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, and we're very happy to be a bridge, a broker, because that's actually a very important part, I think, of these conversations as well. So there've been great exchanges uh, in the chat function Thank you very much. As I say, we will share that um, and those references uh, with you. I just simply uh, want to, to conclude with a few announcements, but I do want to look to the panel. And is there anything that you're bursting to say that you haven't had an opportunity to say? Now is your moment, colleagues. Um, but I'm, I'm not seeing any hands. So, 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 so maybe, all right, please, Tom, a final quick word. I, I, well, it is, it's a final word because I, I will, poor Amelia has been used as a, an existence proof of progress, and I'll tell you, <laughs> but no, but I'm dead serious. We have on this panel the future. With me, I hope I'm the present, maybe the past. Certainly, Sonia is the present, but the future is sitting on this panel as well. So I don't want to end on the, oh, poor us uh, kind of leitmotif. It's just the opposite. Things that are rough take time suck it up let's go there and the Amelia's are going to be teaching their students and in another decade they'll be talking about this as interesting but historical accident compared to the growth of the field so i would you know stay the course i mean it takes time evolution ain't you know rapid but that said i think that Amelia's students students will find this interesting but uh, anachronistic compared to the progress as possible that's exactly the inspiring note that we want to finish on um sonia can you I was going to say Trump, that I shouldn't even mention his name. Would you like to, 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 to add anything? I fully agree with what Tom said, indeed. But also the fact that you have this seminar, so Shape ID, and that so many people joined up to listen today, that really means that there is an interest. And then, yeah, the future looks bright, I would say. Fantastic. And, and Amelia, you are that future. Uh, 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 and Tom's absolutely no right. Pressure, no pressure at all. <laughs> okay, listen, folks, we will wrap it up. Just a few very, very quick announcements. Um, uh, there's a short survey that will be dispatched uh, uh, tomorrow. We would love your feedback on this webinar and also your ideas about future webinars because we're really, we, we feel that they've been working very well in terms of creating community. Uh, the other thing is just uh, in November uh, on the 10th 
10th of November, we're going to have a, a webinar on funding interdisciplinary expertise. Uh, uh, and this goes to the conversation that we've begun here today. Um, and we have representatives from a number of national funding agencies. Um, uh, uh, Milena uh, Zigfuchs from the University of Zagreb and the ERC Scientific Council. So again, hugely supportive of this sort of work. Uh, Tobias Badastrom from the Research Council of Norway, who worked on the uh, social sciences and humanities integration for Horizon 2020 when he was working in the commission uh, for the DG uh, research and Peter Brown who is the director of the Irish Research Council and again I'm very proud of the way my own council the Irish Research Council has really done everything possible to support uh, uh, interdisciplinarity it doesn't mean we can't and shouldn't do more but particularly to encourage the AHSS community to step up to the plate and lead um, uh, as well which I think is very important uh, to do the other uh, one we're, we are running is on the 10th of December it's professionalizing inter and transdisciplinary expertise and again we have three fabulous speakers uh, and all of that information is on our website and uh, um, please do uh, uh, follow us on Twitter uh, check out get on our mailing list and Duran uh, will keep you very much in the loop of, uh, uh, of what's happening with Shape ID as I say we're coming into that final stages uh, and just to go back to um, the question we had about how to make connections we're developing a toolkit as part of Shape ID and we're very much hoping that toolkit will also have a brokerage uh, function so lots of exciting things happening in the Shape ID project. So let me just finish now, close by thanking everybody in the Trinity Long Run Hub um, uh, for supporting us, especially uh, uh, Francesca, who does an astounding uh, job with her. Uh, she's the the mistress of getting webinars right. Uh, Diren, um, who put so much hard work into organizing the panel, our wonderful speakers today, thank you. You've been absolutely fantastic. It's been an inspiring conversation. And it's been great to have you, uh, the audience, with us. Uh, thank you for joining us uh, from across Europe. Hopefully, you will join us again uh, next time. So for now, everybody stay well, stay uh, uh, safe, and I look forward uh, to seeing you all soon. But goodbye. The Hub is a community. Manuscript book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Taimonia Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.